1: In other words, you see what David's doing there? David was, was mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, as he said. He felt as though he was being cast off. And so what did David do? He reached down into those toolbox of those names of the Lord, and he pulled out a perfect tool, and he called upon the name of the Lord as the God of my strength in Psalm 43, 2. So we can imagine Enosh, weak, sickly Enosh, doing the same thing as he did calling on the name of the Lord as the God of my strength. We can imagine him doing that. But to know the different names of the Lord is to know who the Lord is because he is revealed to us by his names. And from this knowledge of adopting this practice, from this knowledge we adopt this practice of calling on these different names of the Lord as name tools from the toolbox of the names of the Lord, it makes us strong and it makes us victorious. That's what it says in Daniel 11:32. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So we need to know the different names of the Lord because those names are very important. They protect us, they protect us. That's what it says in Proverbs 18:10 when it says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous runneth into it and is safe. See that protection there? It's a strong tower, the name of the Lord. And it says we run into it and we're safe. So it's a good, 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 good idea for us, each of us, to start to assemble our own personal toolboxes, our own personal toolboxes of the different names of the Lord to understand what they are and what they imply about God. Why? so that we can use them at different times, pull out an appropriate name of the Lord, and call on the name of the Lord. Now, Hagar has given us this very important new name of the Lord, Thou God Seest Me. That's a wonderful name of the Lord. And, and I came to understand how valuable that name was in 1987, 25 years ago in April, me being the father of the house, and I decided that you know, we should go take a skiing trip, and, and uh, our three boys, they... They knew how to ski, and so that everybody was very happy. And so we all wanted it to be a really positive experience because this is the first time when my wife Cheryl was going to come. So this is the first time she's going to be on skis. We all want it to be a really positive experience. So we stayed the night in, down in the valley in Salt Lake City. And then we were driving up to the slopes in the morning, and the boys and I were telling Cheryl, they're trying to build some anticipation. We were telling, oh, it's going to be beautiful. It's Oh, wait till you get there. You won't believe it. Beautiful mountains, white, gorgeous snow, blue sky. Oh, the air is so wonderful. And so what she was doing, she was telling us that she could not understand how you would want to do a sport that you purposefully... Put yourself in danger in. That's what she was telling us. And so she was telling us all about, we were telling about the beauty and how wonderful it is. And she's telling us about all the avalanches that she's read about, all the broken legs, all the people lost in the snow. (laughs) And the fact, it was really this conference, we weren't on the same page. And so the boys and I came to the conclusion that Mom could just write a bestseller book and she would, she would have the title be this, All the Things You Could Worry About If You Could Only Just Remember. That would be the title of her book. Or there'd be a short title, Being Married to Tom. Anyway, for, for Cheryl's first time on skis, I wanted it to be a real positive experience for her. So before coming, I had found out about the beginner school, so I could get her in that for skiing. And I assured her that by telling her that it wasn't dangerous, I told her how I started skiing when I was in high school in Switzerland and I was 22 years earlier and how I'd never gotten hurt. And, and so I, you know, I carried her skis up the hill for her to the ski school in front of the little door there where all this, the new beginner skiers were lying would come and I put the skis on her and I told her not to worry and I told her don't do anything just stand there and just wait and then I went down to sign her up for the beginners class I told her I said just stay here I'm gonna go talk to the lady instructor and so it'll be all right so I went off and I explained to the lady instructor that my wife was just a little scared and could she just just please be just please be a little extra understanding with her and when I came back, there was Cheryl standing there right where I left. And they had just, uh, they just brought down this girl on a sled who had badly broken her leg. <laughs> and they parked the sled right in front of Cheryl. So this girl's head is right in front of Cheryl's skis. It couldn't have been a worse place for them to stop there. And they looked up at each other. You know, Cheryl looked down and the girl looked up to her. And Cheryl said to her, have you been skiing a long time? And the girl replied, this was my first time on skis. (laughs) It could have been worse. (laughs) And Cheryl started to cry. (laughs) And she went, and so, but she was a trooper and she went to the beginner's class. And in her class, there was a man, also a beginner, he had a very bad back. And Cheryl watched him take a very bad fall. And he seriously, he really seriously hurt his back. And he was lying in the snow, face down in the snow with a terrific agony and pain and no one could touch him in fact everybody was afraid to touch him they had no idea what was going on so they called the helicopter the doctor came in the helicopter but they had to wait 30 minutes for the helicopter to arrive so for the whole time if you can picture it here's this man he's laying face down in the snow in absolute agony no one can touch him everybody's gathered around him and no one can help him. It was such a desperate situation as everyone wanted to help and no one could. And Cheryl was trying and trying and trying to make her way over to the man, but she really couldn't get there. And she said, I have something I want to tell him. I have something I want to tell him. And she, but it was, you know, she couldn't. And then, then the helicopter came and so forth like that. So I said to her, Cheryl, what is it that was so important that you wanted to tell the man? She said, I just, you know, there he was lying there face down in agony. What do you say to a man? He's lying face down in the snow. He can't move. He's in absolute pain and agony. No one is, everyone is afraid to touch him. So I said, Cheryl, sure, what is it that you wanted to tell him? And she said, I just wanted to tell him the words of Hagar, thou God seest me. And when she said that it all became so clear to me what a valuable name that is for God. That's what she wanted to share with the man. She just says, you know, Hagar, when she was all alone, she just wanted to say, Hagar said, thou God seest me. Wonderful name for God. So now, speaking of the names of God, we come now to verse six. And in verse six, we see that God gave to Moses four names, four names of the Lord. For him, to Moses, put these in your toolbox for the names of the Lord, and you pull them out. When you need to call on the different names of God, here's four for you. And so in verse six, it says, moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then it says, Moses hid his face. He's afraid to look upon God. So here's four names that God gave to Moses. And they were, number one, the God of thy father. Who's his father? Um, A man named Amram, so his name is Amram. So the God of thy father, Amram. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So these names for Moses had particular meanings. What did these names mean to Moses? What do we understand about God? What did Moses understand about God? What do we understand about God when God said that his name was the God of his father, Amram? So Amram was a man who, like all the Jewish people at that time, was a helpless slave under an oppressing Egypt. And when God said that his name was the God of his father, that means that the Lord is the help of the helpless. That's what he's saying. He said, I am God, I am the help of the helpless. That's what he was saying there. Now, next he said that he was the God of Abraham. So what did Moses, what do we understand about God when he says his name is the God of Abraham? Well, the, God held out two very important aspects about the life of Abraham that he wanted the Jewish people to consider. The first aspect about Abraham is found in Deuteronomy 26.5. Moses was teaching the Jewish people about their father, Abraham. And he said, when you speak about your father, Abraham, I want you to say this. This is the words of Deuteronomy 26.5. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, a Syrian ready to perish was my father, okay? And he went down into Egypt, sojourned with a few, and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. See, a Syrian ready to perish, a Syrian ready to perish. A Syrian ready to perish is not what you would consider a righteous man. A Syrian ready to perish is not a person who's gonna come to God with good works and say to God, aren't you impressed? a Syrian ready to perish we a point is made about him when god called him he was not circumcised and being describing him as a Syrian ready to perish really shows the picture of grace god called abraham not because of anything in abraham at all in fact when we actually look in genesis there about the calling of abraham we see that there is indication of some reluctance on abraham's part potentially because uh, actually, it was his father who decided to leave Ur of the Chaldees and and God's uh, characterized that time as when he said, I brought Abraham out. But that's the first thing. The second thing is found, the aspect about Abraham that God wanted the Jewish people to focus on is found in Isaiah 51 two, where it says, look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. So here we see About Abraham that God says that he called him alone. He was alone. There was no good thing in Abraham that God made him call him. God's call to Abraham was strictly of grace and he was all alone. So when Moses heard and when we hear God say that his name is the God of Abraham, we understand that the name of the Lord is the sinner's hope. It's the sinner's hope because it's a Sinner's hope to be saved. It's a sinner's hope to become a friend of God. It's a sinner's hope for the God of grace. Now, what do we understand about God when he says that his name is the God of Isaac, which you he said here, the God of Isaac? Well, Isaac was a man who had a lot of problems and he had a lot to be discouraged over. The Philistines chased him off of one piece of land to another piece of land. They stopped up the wells that his father Abraham had dug It was a tough time for Isaac, poor Isaac, and he chose the wrong son. Isaac thought that all the blessings of God were going to come through his son Esau. He was dead wrong on that. His wife, Rebekah, conspired against him in the stealing of the birthright. That's a tough time for the man. And uh, furthermore, his son Jacob then has to leave the house because Esau says he's going to kill him, and he doesn't see him for 25 years when he's in the land with Laban. So, Uh, Isaac is a man who is subject to discouragement, but God encouraged Isaac. When he sowed seed one time, it brought forth a hundredfold. When he dug a well, it says it was a living spring of water. And that was always God blessing, always God encouraging Isaac. So when Moses heard, when we hear God say, my name is the God of Isaac, We understand, Moses understand, that this is the name of the Lord that is the encourager, God the encourager for the discouraged. And what do we understand when God calls, says that his name is the God of Jacob? Well, Jacob was a man who tried the patience of God. He was really trying the patience of God. He was determined to live his independent, unsurrendered life. So after he steals the birthright from his brother Esau, he sets out on his own way, he encounters God in, Bethel, where he sees the ladder to heaven. Jacob makes a promise to God that that the Lord's gonna be his God. Jacob doesn't keep his promise. 25 years go on, finally God meets him in Genesis 32 and wrestles with him all night, puts his hip out of joint, and his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. God waited 25 years for Jacob to finally get right with God. So when we hear God say that my name is the God of Jacob, we understand that this is the name that indicates patience, patience of God. All wonderful names of the Lord, very wonderful, each with a distinct meaning. Now, in verse seven and eight, it's, it's vital, it's vital for a person to know God by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's by knowing him, and his names reveal him, it's by knowing him that a person gets eternal life. That's what he said in John 17, 3, when he said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, speaking to his Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So that knowledge is not just knowing about the Lord Jesus Christ, as in he was a historical figure, and I can recite to you all the things that he did and so forth and so on. No, no, no. It's more than that. It's a personal knowledge of him as a very, very important, the most important person in life, personal Lord, personal Savior. And so the Lord Jesus Christ revealed who he is now in these verses here in Exodus in verses 7 and 8. We saw from verse 7 that he's the God who surely saw, as he said, the affliction of the Jewish people, as he sees the affliction that we have from our sin. From verse seven, it says that he is the God who heard their cry and he hears our cry. And he says he is the God who knew their sorrows and he knows our sorrows. And notice how he said, I know their sorrows. He didn't, he used that present tense. He didn't say I knew their sorrows, he said I know their sorrows. That means what he's saying here is that it's a very active present thing for him. He was actively experiencing at that time the sorrow that the people were feeling as they were under the heel of the Egyptian people. And then we saw in verse eight that he didn't just take in that information that his people were under affliction, crying and sorrowful. That information for him motivated him. It became a point of determination for God, it became very personal for the Lord to take action and the action he took is described in verse eight as I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and to a good land. That's a perfect description of what the Lord Jesus Christ did, did for us. What did he do? He saw how sin had just impoverished us, and imprisoned us. Sin made us a prisoner. He saw that. He knew how sin had made us sorrowful. He knew how sorry we felt inside for our sin, just like with Israelites. He heard when from within ourselves, even without any noise, we cried out for him to save us from our sins, or maybe we did cry out. And all of that, when he saw this, it motivated him. And so what did he do? He left heaven. He came down, he became a man to deliver us, as he said in Psalm 40, verse seven and eight, he said, then said I, lo, or behold, look at this, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy laws within my heart. So that determination that we saw in verse eight, I am come down to deliver them, is the same determination that we read behind the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when it was time for him to go to Jerusalem where he would become the atoning lamb the lamb of God and what it says about something very interesting happened to him and it's described in Luke 9:51 it says and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up he steadfastly set his face to go up to Jerusalem so what that means is that when the time came for him to go to Jerusalem, when it came time for him to die for our sins, something dramatic changed. Something that was so dramatic it was evident in his face. And it says that it described him, he steadfastly set his face to go up to Jerusalem. It's a very interesting word. It's a very interesting word. He steadfastly set his face. Now, what was going on? Well, a few verses earlier, There's another interesting word that's used to describe the death of the Lord, and it's found in Luke 9, 31, where it says, speaking of, uh, where they're speaking of what happened, it says that he spake of his decease, his death. He spake of his decease, which he should, and here's the interesting word, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. That's the word, accomplish. He spoke about his death, that he should accomplish, you know, we wouldn't talk about death that way. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, you know I'm about to go accomplish my death, no, you know. That, but he did, because that was very important, because he looked at his work, he looked at his death as a work that he would accomplish, as a job that he would perform. And the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples that he would be killed. He would, The external source of somebody killing him was going to happen. And he said this to them in Mark nine thirty one. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. How did he die? They killed him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise again. Make no mistake about it. When the Lord Jesus Christ died, he died as a man, he was killed by men, he was killed. He was killed, that external source, he was killed. He gave himself to be killed, he laid down his life in the sense that he allowed himself to be taken and killed, but he was killed. And he saw clearly that he would be delivered into the hands of these men, and he saw clearly that they would kill him, and he anticipated those hands that would take him and kill him. But he saw beyond those men who would kill him, and he saw to the great work of it all, the great work of atonement that he would accomplish. That's why when he died, he cried out from the cross in John 19.30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, or accomplished, or asa in Hebrew, telestai in Greek, accomplished, finished, done. And then it says, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So for all his life, he looked forward to his death as a work that he would finish, that he would accomplish. He lived a sinless life. He strove against sin, but he never sinned. And for the three years of his public ministry, he lived in public display before his enemies, before his friends. He was just like the Passover lamb, who for three days was under the scrutiny of the family to make sure the lamb had no blemish. He was three years under the scrutiny of the people of Israel, where they could see before he was killed. This is a qualified Lamb of God, because he knew that only by the blood of the Passover lamb that was going to go over the house, uh, over the door, and on the side posts of the house, could the inhabitants of the house be protected. Only the blood could shield like an umbrella those people who were in the house. And he knew that only by his blood could men be shielded like an umbrella from the death they deserved from their sins. He knew that. And he was sent to finish the work to save them, to become the umbrella. And when he prayed to his father, he spoke about that work and the need of finishing it when he said in John 17, 4, speaking to his father, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And so how was he going to deliver them? He was going to deliver them as he said in John three thirteen through 16, when he said, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. See, I am come down to deliver them, Exodus 3. He said, the son of man came down from heaven, even the son of man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. And then he went into the motivation of it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that's the point there where we'll we'll stop for today and we'll continue in our next lesson. God bless you. Father, thank you so much for, sh- for, for recording wonderful things in your word and then for allowing us, Lord, to open up the treasure and to learn more and more about Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we continue studying in the book of Exodus that you would teach us more about him who died for us.
0: We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at TomCantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at eight hundred two four seven three zero five one. 247 3051